This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and once again, joining me on the other side is Mr. Jeff Abercrombie. Jeff, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Yeah, it hasn't been very long since we last talked, um, but this time we get to focus a little bit more on the defensive side of players, so excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a little over a week ago now. We just we talked round one of the NFL draft, and you know a lot of big time prospects talked, and then obviously day two and day three of the NFL draft concluded. Rounds two through seven, you know I broke down each of those picks, and then I did my initial dynasty rookie rankings the day after the NFL draft ended last week, and then I have some thoughts about what I've seen out there in terms of the consensus rankings, some thoughts in terms of my own rankings, some maybe minor things I'm thinking about adjusting. But before we get to the offensive side of the ball, I want something we don't do a lot here at Saturday to Sunday, something we actually wish we would even be able to focus more time on, is talk about the defensive side of the ball a little bit more and, and talk some IDP rankings. We know IDP leagues are really gaining popularity and people enjoy them, and they're different, and they're unique. So I did put in the rankings notebook some IDP rankings for the rookie class earlier than I usually do. Usually it's something I eventually get around to, but I I put them in the book probably Monday or Tuesday following the conclusion of the NFL draft. And the the, the thing about IDP leagues and IDP rankings, and I'd love to bring you in on this in a second, is it really is catered so much like right everybody's rankings are going to have to be catered to their league because idp leagues are so different from one setting to the next right like more than like regular leagues like usually most leagues for the offensive side you have ppr you have half ppr those are pretty much the, the consensus some are tight end premium some are super flex but in terms of like the scoring the scoring is mostly pretty similar besides the half the full point ppr maybe passing touchdowns four to six but the idp side of it is so drastically different right from you know is it big play you know gets a lot of points is it mostly a tackle based league you know and then the 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 setup and the scoring really drastically different is is that something that you you find a little bit tricky about idp leagues it's it's really tough to make a rankings that's kind of one size fits all it is and it kind of catches me off guard sometimes especially when i join a new league and um they they tinkered with the settings and um you know a lot of a lot less uh a lot of times you know your staples in your idp uh, landscape are are guys that you know are on the field in the box get a lot of tackles right your defensive backs are going to be generally your box safeties and um and during the league last year where tackles were greatly diminished and for the defensive backs things like pass defense and interceptions um became like a much bigger factor. And so it, it actually put, you know, cornerbacks and other, other positions into play. Um, so that I think, you know, when I see IDP growing in a lot of popularity, um, I think a lot of times, you know, people are kind of jumping on sleeper as a platform where they have a lot of IDP support. And, you know, they tend to, to keep things pretty simple with, you know, a standard defensive line you know, where a lot of times the edge rushers you know, as outside linebackers still classify as a defensive line eligible, and then your linebackers, and then, you know, all defensive backs. And so I tend to try to, knowing that that's kind of where a lot of new people are coming in, that's sort of where I focus a lot. Of, you know, if I, I put my ranks together and um, I put kind of my analysis out there on Twitter, uh, so it'll be mostly catered to that. And you know, always happy to answer direct questions when it's like, well, my league does this. How do I adjust for that? And so yeah, that's, yeah. that's actually the great part about being able to interact on Twitter because you can give like specific advice and adjust on the fly. Yeah, I think that's something that's really interesting. And sleeper, the sleeper app is not something that I've had much uh, familiarity with yet. And something that I hopefully in the future can, can get a little bit more familiar with it. I think the, 
one of the biggest things is the designations. And I think most sites are having a hard time with what to do with those edge rushers, right? Those edge rushers, like I know on like most of my IDP leagues are on MFL and it's a really good platform, but I still think they got to work out some kinks with the defensive side of it because too often a lot of these leagues, like these pass rushers get lost in the mix if they're classified as linebackers because they're just not getting the tackle production. So unless like you adjusted with sack numbers being like greatly inflated mm-hmm. to kind of offset that. And that's something that that's really tricky. So like when I made my ranks and I put them in the rankings notebook for Saturday to Sunday, I basically used the designations on mm-hmm. MFL. So that, that that's, and it says it right at the top of anyone who has access to the rankings notebook. It says that these are based on MFL designations and obviously that can change in the future. And that's something that, you know, you do got to be very cognizant of that position designations do change. I know I personally in the IDP leagues I'm in, I sometimes steer clear of the guys who I think could be those hybrid guys. And if they're classified as a defensive lineman, I'm very leery about taking them if I think they could then get the switch to linebacker because it could dramatically impact them and they're not even usable based on the settings and the score in the league. So it's a very, it's a very unique dynamic of trying to rank guys. It, it really sometimes depends a lot on the scheme that the defensive coordinator or the head coach of his defensive mind is going to run because that could theoretically then impact their designation. So it, it's a really interesting dynamic that you don't really see on the offensive side of the ball too much. So yeah, let me well, get right into it. Changes, yeah. Well, the scheme changes year to year can actually change your position player. Um, but, you know, for, for MFL, um, you know, I think one of the best parts about that is a customizable right? And so, you know, I think there's some good followers out there. Um, I think uh, Adam Sikas, I think he's at Sticky Z. He, he has like a um, a little portal that you could like plug in and, you know, automatically change all of the designations for defense into like true position. It's like edge players are edge players. And I think that that can be a pretty valuable thing for people who like are struggling with the back and forth. And, and I think just one other thing to touch on, before we jump too far in, and it might be coming into the second half of the episode, is scoring can, in IDP leagues can be diminished relative to honors of players or, or sort of balanced back up. And so, you know, I play leagues that, that balance the scoring, you know, where your top players on offense and your top players on defense tend to be about the same. Um, and there's some depth things with linebackers, like pretty deep, but in general, you know, like, the, the, you know, I think. I like it in the leagues where that you can actually build your roster in any way you want, whether that's quarterbacks around superflex, you know, stud defensive players, and, and it opens up a lot more avenues. So I would just recommend, you know, anybody kind of dipping their toe into the IDP pool um, to give that a try and actually make them important to your league. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something I know I'm in, Multiple IDP leagues, and some of them, they really have it balanced that, like, the top linebacker could score, you know, right close to the top running back. And I think that's something that makes it more viable. And then I'm in other leagues that's, like, the the IDP guys are kind of like a dime a dozen. They don't really make it worth your while in terms of, you know, keeping them and, and, and valuing them in, like, trades and stuff because they really – the way the scoring is set up is – the people who are available on waivers or free agency are not all that different than who's in your starting lineup. So it really, you know, the replacement value is very easy to get. So they just don't have a lot of value, but then other leagues, you know, they're tremendous value and they're more valuable sometimes than the offensive guys. So it's, it's just so such a different dynamic compared to anything we see on the offensive side of the ball for the most part in terms of just how different it could be from league to league scoring to scoring positional, uh, you know, what they're specified in terms of their position, it really does dramatically alter and shift the narrative when we're talking about IDP rookies and we're talking about IDP leagues just in general. So let's take this to sharing a little bit about my rankings and then you can follow up with any thoughts in terms of my rankings. If you have any rankings on your own that you want to share, we would love to hear them. So I'm going to start with the defensive line. So again, in most In most IDP leagues, this is going to consist of your defensive linemen and whether they're defensive tackles, defensive ends. And this also then 
you know, if we're using MFL, the traditional MFL designations, you're going to see some guys who are probably going to be considered edge rushers who might still be classified as D line, even though they might be standing up. But as we talked about on the first night of the draft, those three, four and four, three designations are kind of going by the wayside, right? You know, so that's something that really, you know, because teams play in sub packages so much, those initial designations don't even have the merit that they once upon time had. So my D line rankings right now look like this. I have Jalen Phillips, who went to Miami in the first round, Quiddy Pay, who went to the Indianapolis Colts in the, in the first round, Gregory Rousseau, who went to Buffalo in round one, uh, Jason Oa, who went to Baltimore in round one, Peyton Turner, who went to the Saints in round one, Boogie Basham went to Buffalo on day two, the wild card, Adeo Adigbiangbo, who went to the Colts. He's probably going to be a, a redshirt year this year, but I really do like his upside down the line. So he's, I think he's a great stash in IDP leagues. I have Joseph Asai at eight who went to the Bengals. Then I have a couple defensive tackles who kind of round out my top 10 here. Uh, Christian Barmore, who went to the Patriots, uh, Levi Onrezikwe, who went to the Lions, and then Davion Nixon, Carolina. I do have Patrick Jones, who went to Minnesota, who's more of a traditional edge defensive end. And then Jay Tufeli, who went to Jacksonville, and then Ali McNeil, who went to Detroit, another day two guy. So I have in the notebooks those back-end guys that I just talked about, the defensive tackles. I have all starred, and I have a little note that says, in DT premium leagues or where DTs are separate, those guys would obviously have more value, and they might be a little bit more inter uh, intermingled with some of those other defensive line guys that I talked about if there's a if there's a little bit of a premium in terms of defensive tackle scorers or if they if there's a standalone DT position those guys will, would have more value and would be mixed in a little bit higher in the overall D line rankings. So Jeff any, any thoughts there on the D line? I think the interesting I think the top is pretty interesting. I do think there's a lot of ways people can go with Phillips and and Quiddy Pay and Rousseau and Oa and, and and Peyton Turner, I think those are probably the five guys that I think are most intriguing towards the top. Any any thoughts on the top of those rankings? Yeah, actually, I had it pretty close to you, um, but Flip away and Roos, uh, Gregory Rousseau, I just had him flipped a little bit. I think that it's, it's actually really Oa was my third. I'm to think the Baltimore situation is really interesting. Really good organization. Um, so I just kind of, kind of just see some upside there um, with him getting a lot of snaps, and I think that's actually where I, I'd probably drive here right now. I haven't put Peyton Turner in there. I probably should do a little bit more. He was kind of a late riser draft day, um, so he wasn't up there at the beginning. And I might have to look to see what New Orleans and the NFL, because I, I think it wasn't just New Orleans. A lot of the NFL realized it too. So I'll, I'll look at him. He's at the top of my other tier. Um, and then I, I will say, um, you, you kind of mentioned the edge versus OLB and, and defensive line. Um, like I said, I, I kind of ranked mine with sleeper in mind. So Aziz Ojolari for the Giants actually is defensive line eligible on the sleeper platform. And so he made it into my first tier um, right above Gregory Rousseau. Um, and I think that's also another interesting landing spot where New York needs a lot of that pass rush help and I think he's a pretty fascinating prospect to be, to um you know be a pretty dynamic back there and, and create a little bit of pressure. Yeah, I mean I really interesting you bring up Ojolari because I have him over in the linebacker group again going with the MFL designations, but I'm right there with you. If he was a part of my D line or if we're using the sleeper app or he's an edge you know, and they have an edge rusher category after Phillips and pay, he'd be the next guy I'd be intrigued with. Those guys, I think have a little bit more versatility to maybe be a little bit more stout against the run. While I think Ojolari is, is okay in run defense and better than I think people give him credit for. I think he's more of a traditional path rusher off the edge, you know, just his body type and stuff like that. I think pay and, and Phillips could be a little bit better in run support. So yes, I would agree with you. Ojolari would be number three for me if he was a part of that group. And going back to the discussion of you had Rousseau and Oa flip-flop, I think part of my internal debate there was again prepping for MFL and concerned 
that Oa is going to be a stand-up 3-4 edge rusher in that Baltimore scheme. So is that going to be a guy that if you go with the traditional setting, positional settings on MFL or Yahoo or something like that, is Oa going to get classified as an edge as a D, as a linebacker at some point in those settings that don't have that specific edge rusher designation like Sleeper does? Because I don't really see him you know, in that Baltimore scheme, most of those guys that have been their prototype pass rushers usually have linebacker designation in most IDP leagues. It's just the the nature of, of how that position is played. So I'm wondering if always going to be a guy that's going to lose that designation in like an MFL setting. And that's why I think I had Rousseau ahead of him. But it's kind of interesting that Turner, you, you mentioned Turner, he's going to be guys going to have to wait, right? There's not really an opening there. Like, you know, they, they have their two defensive ends and they play, you know, again, we know it's only part of it, right? Cause so much is in subs, but they're, they're very much more of a prototype for free team. Right. And they don't, they don't, they're not as much of a hybrid look. They, they usually play more for free or then they're in their sub packages. So Turner is, is clearly behind, you know, Cameron Jordan. And then a couple of years ago, they obviously made the big move up to get, you know, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the, the other pass rusher. From New- right? Yeah. Yeah. Marcus Davenport. So, so they have Davenport there. They have Cameron Jordan. So Turner's a guy that if you're going to invest in him in an IDP league, you're going to kind of have to wait it out a little bit. Right. And the same thing could be well, said about Greg, the same thing could be said about Gregory Rousseau, right. You know, the bills have a lot on that D line already. So I think those are some spots that, those are high-rated guys, but you're going to have to kind of stash them and wait it out a little. Well, I, I know um, I was actually a little bit surprised New Orleans picked up the fifth-year option for Davenport because he hasn't broken out amidst all the promise. I mean, he really hasn't made the impact that they hoped he would. And um, I believe they just lost him. I think Trey Hendrickson was the, the free agent who went over to Cincinnati um, and had oh, outproduced. Davenport last year. And I don't expect a rookie to do that. Um, but I do think there's a window there um, that it, it, it's kind of Davenport's sort of last shot. Um, and if Turner comes in and lights it up, um, I think that there's some upside. Yeah, that you, you you know you make a good point. Davenport hasn't really taken control of that thing. That if Turner does come in, it could you know they could push you know again those those fifth year options are. I think sometimes the the consensus in the mainstream media people are a little bit confused in terms of what they mean. And when people pick up that fifth year option, it's only really guaranteed for injury, right? So, you know, so it's one of those things that if he struggles this year, they could still move on from him, right? If he gets hurt, that's a different story, right? Then they're, then they're kind of on the hook because they picked up that fifth year option. So it's one of those things where you could kind of assess the situation and, you know, and if they decide to, that, he's ready Peyton Turner. Maybe they don't keep him on the roster next year. They picked it up because they wanted to have that control, but doesn't mean they can't cut him. You know, it's not like they're locking into anything in terms of guaranteed money or anything like that. Like his signing bonus is obviously prorated, you know, over the duration of the contract. So that part is, is going to be a cap hit if they move on from him. But the, the, the rest of the fifth year is not, you know, it's only guaranteed for injury. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle. The same thing can be said about even about the quarterbacks, right? And Sam Darnold in Carolina. I think sometimes people think that they're, they're committed and it's going to be this massive cap hit if, if they move on. And that's not necessarily the case. But it's going to be interesting. You know, you mentioned Ojulari and in leagues that he does have that edge designation. He's going to be interesting because I think he can, I think he could step out right away and potentially be the top edge rusher for the Giants. And he's going to get on the field right away. And the, and the one guy I'll bring him up and ask your take on him. And I think I, I know probably where you're going to go with it, but I'm interested to know in on the sleeper app is Joe Tryon. Same thing. Is he designated like Ojulari? Because my guess is he probably is. Because Tryon is very much that prototype of edge rusher, similar to Ojolari, but he's probably not at, at the, the top of people's minds only because Tampa Bay is a loaded roster, right? Like that was this, they kind of went best available. They liked him. So I, I think my guess is he's not at the top of rankings in that setting because of that, but he could be another guy that, depending on what site you play on, 
Tryon might be right up there in that mix too with the, you know, Ojolari's, Peyton Turner's, Russo's, uh, you know, Jason Owens, those guys, you know, Joe Tryon probably should be right in that mix if he has the same designation as those guys as well. So um, I think I'm looking through my, I, I kind of walk through the draft as well, make sure I put everybody's draft capital and what positional designation that they got on sleeper roof next to it. And so he actually gets both. Uh, he'd, he'd be eligible in, in either the linebacker or the defensive line, which you'd probably always play him in defensive line position. Um, I just think I look at the way Tampa Bay's built their roster and two-year extension for Levante David, the two-year extension for Jason Pierre-Paul. Um, I, I think you're just kind of, you're looking at them and, and I think they've got two year, two more years with Tom Brady, two more years with that roster um, before a lot of these young guys are, are able to kind of hit, you know, make their strides. So I think, I probably think Turner might get on the field a little bit more than Joe Tryon. So they're in the same tier to me with Tryon to little Peyton Turner. Um, but I still think I like the Ojolari, the Rousseau, and the Oway better. But like you said, if you do have a potential, like on MFL, that they'll take away that designation, you probably have to bake that risk into your ranks. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think it's an interesting conversation about that. So so let's take it to the linebacker ranks that I have. At the top for me, I have Mika Parsons, who ended up going to Dallas. Now, Dallas is loaded in terms of you know, their linebacker core. So I think we're usually used to when a linebacker goes really high in round one, whether it's mid round one or late round one, think like Devin Bush. And, you know, when when those guys went, like they were penciled in to be monster stat producers in year one. That was just the, the kind of the nature of the beast. Like when guys go that early, you know, and there's been a lot of linebackers over the year, but when they go that early, they're usually penciled in to be major stat producers right off the bat. Mika Parsons is in a little bit of a different, unique situation here, right? Because they got Jalen Smith. They got, you know, uh, they had a lot of guys there. You know, I know they didn't pick up the fifth-year option, speaking of options, on, on Van Der Esch. But, I mean, he's going to be – he's a big-time player. So, like, the immediate impact that Mika Parsons may have had if he went to a different team, you know, like, I just – you know, if he went to New York, let's say – it would have been him and Blake Martinez, right? They would have been on the field constantly, basically the whole game, you know, and, and they would have put up both stats, you know, tremendous stats. But in Dallas, it's a little bit different. You don't usually see a team who takes a guy at the linebacker position who's not in round one as high as they did, who's not going to be basically on the field at all times from the get-go and get an opportunity to put up major, major stats. So I think Parsons is going to play a ton. I just think it's a little bit different than what we usually see from the linebacker position. So he's number one for me. Uh, Jamin Davis went to Washington. He was number two. I don't know if you saw it, but in New York, the story came out uh, in the last 24 hours or so that apparently when the Giants moved back to 20, they weren't edge rusher was not in their thought based on value. They actually had targeted Tony and, and Davis, which was interesting because there was no connection with the giants and Davis leading up to the draft in terms of, so they kept that, they kept their interest in Davis pretty quiet and, you know, and hush hush. But I found that interesting. The Gettleman said, those are the two guys they had targeted at 20 and Vera Tucker, for some reason he didn't go, but they assumed he was going to go. But Vera Tucker, uh, Tony and Davis were the, were the guys that they were really hoping when they moved back to 20 that they would get one of them. So he's number two for me. Uh, Jeremiah Owusa Karamoa is number three. I think you can make the case that he, he fell for a medical thing, but it sounds like it was more about them just not having enough time to really get a full read on what it was. So he might be number two on, on boards. And I could even see by the time draft season really rolls around for me, which is a little bit later in the summer, I could even see myself flip-flopping those two because I do think uh, Karamoa really has the opportunity to be an impactful guy who can play sideline to sideline. So he might even be number two for me. I think two for interchangeable there. I have Zayvon Collins at number four who went to Arizona Number five, Nick Bolton, Kansas City. He might get an opportunity right away to start. And number six, Pete Werner went to the Saints on day two. Number seven, Chas Surratt went to Minnesota. Number eight, Derek Barnes. Number nine, Baron Browning. 
Number 10, Jabril Cox, who also went to Dallas, but he's really just a stash until they move on for some guys like Van Der Esch and Jalen Smith. So maybe down the line, I do like Cox's game a lot. Thought he was going to go in round two. Dallas ended up getting him in round four. And then Cameron McGrone, who went to the Patriots, and Isaiah McDuffie, who went to Green Bay. And then on my board, I had those edge guys kind of rounding it out, like Ojulari and Tryon, because to me, on like an MFL setting with traditional, you know, we're tackle heavy, those guys just kind of pale in comparison. So I put them on my board because I wanted them in my ranks, but they're kind of at the back end of this for me because of the the settings that I was going by and, and more of the traditional scorings where you really rely on tackles. Thoughts on the linebacker position? So I think Olusu Karamoto, um, he is, is like on, I guess, half tier below the first-round linebackers for me. And I think he had the first round talent. I think what's difficult is when you've got these tweener players. He's the linebacker, sort of. He's a light linebacker, sort of like a deep, safe, strong safety kind of box slash slot player too. He's kind of like more of a joker sort of. Um, there's just a little bit of risk in them translating to your strong ID tackle production. Um, so that's just my one concern and why I've caught him. A half a step below those three, Collins and Davis. Um, I'll circle back on Parsons. I heard a great interview about him. Um, but I, I would just touch on, I think I was pretty much following you all the way through. Um, and I, I put a little bit Werner. Chaz Surratt's going to be a raw prospect, but interesting to see potentially what he grows into. Um, but there's two names that I have um, that I didn't hear you talk about. And I, I'm intrigued about the possible opportunities that they'll get. And so one was Ernst because, you know, the Rams had very few picks. He was, I think, their um, second or third pick, you know, you know, the first one in the fourth round. Um, and it's not like they've had really good linebacker play since Corey Littleton left. So, um, so he's really interesting. I'm not sold on him as like a prospect and a player, but, um, but I think he'll get a lot. He'll, he'll have an open opportunity to win that battle. Um, and then the same situation with, um, with Monty Rice, because again, I think as far as like his player profile is, you know, sort of like a development into a starter. Um, but uh, the Tennessee linebackers have um, both, Jayon Brown, he was only re-signed on a one-year deal. And um, Rashawn Evans, I think his deal is is ends this year too. So they have two linebackers in there that are, you know, playing, playing in the middle. Um, both might not be there. Um, and so there might be an opportunity there for, for Monty Rice. So those are yeah, kind of two, some opportunity plays. Yeah, two, two guys that should have been on my ranks that I think when I created these initially – just out of sight and and forgot about them and and they were they were an oversight so I'm glad you just brought them in I think just thinking out loud I probably would put them before guys like Cameron McGrone and Isaiah McDuffie and probably I would just I think I'd still slightly rather stash Jabril Cox and hope that maybe they move on from both Van Der Esch and Jalen Smith within the next year or two because I really do like Cox's talent. I thought he had second round talent. Not really sure why he fell. Maybe it was a medical. So I like Rice and Jones, and I think their opportunity could maybe come for them a little bit sooner than a guy like Jabril Cox. But I but I am intrigued by maybe Cox's upside. So I probably put him after Cox, those two guys, Rice and Jones, but before McGrone and McDuffie. So that, that was just an oversight. So oversight on my end. So I'm glad that you mentioned those. And you said any any thoughts on you said you had some thoughts on Mika Parsons? I think I may have lost Jeff there. So I'll try to I'll try to get Jeff back in. Um but as I was saying before on Mika Parsons, he he's interesting because usually when we see guys go that high in round one, they're immediate major contributors, right? They're projected 100 tackles, 120 tackles. So so I think that's something that we may not see with Mika Parsons, right? He's not 
in that situation, like, you know, a couple of years ago with the Devons, right. You know, you know, in, in Pittsburgh and, you know, we knew that Devin Bush was going to come in and be an impact player right out of the gate and put up major stats and, and major production, you know? So I think it's interesting to, to kind of see, you know, how quickly Parsons gets on the field, you know, and what he is will what he does in terms of fantasy production because I just think that usually when we when we see guys drafted as high as Parsons goes, they do usually get that immediate opportunity to be major tackle producers. So I I do think that's something that is a little different in this scenario. Like more times than not, when a when a linebacker goes as high as Parsons, he's thought of very highly even in the redraft community. He's considered one of the top linebackers. So it's a little bit different than than I think what we've seen in the past with, like I said, the, the you know, Devin Bush, you know, even other guys that we've seen go round one over the last couple of years. I think there's usually a little bit more immediate high-end impact production. Ta- like large tackle numbers that for Parsons, we might just not see in year one. Looks like we still don't have Jeff there. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep this moving and, and uh, take this to the defensive back group here. And if Jeff can get back on, I will uh, circle back and ask, ask him his thoughts on Mika Parsons. So if I take this to the defensive back group, Defensive back is really another unique thing based on league settings, right? It really does depend on, you know, how much pass breakups are worth, how much interceptions are worth. So it's, it's always a little bit dependent. They don't have a lot of value. They're very close in terms of total points. So it's hard to differentiate between these guys. So I think these are the rankings that could be adjusted the most as the off season continues, because I do think that there's a lot of, once we kind of hear the positions that these guys are going to play, are they going to be more free or strong? Are they going to be, you know, what are, what are their responsibilities going to be? Cause I think that really does impact their their potential here in terms of in terms of their production. So I, I think that's something that is going to be interesting to to kind of gather with these defensive backs. So let me share my rankings first here. At number one, uh, went to the Raiders in round two. Most people thought it was going to be the, the first safety taken. That's Trevon Morig, who went to the Raiders. He's an interesting guy because when you when you think about who he is, to me, he's a guy that's got good size and frame, good to very good athleticism, speed, movement skills, coverage skills, he's got ball skills. To me, he's versatile to play free safety or strong safety. I think he's probably going to be asked to play more in the back end and close to the line of scrimmage. So I'm not sure he I'm not sure he's the guy who is going to end up being first on this list as I get a little bit closer to the start of the football season, I do think he very much can play free or strong. And based on his traits, I think he slightly is better maybe on the back end. So if that's how the Raiders are going to use him, I think that's going to limit his opportunity in terms of tackle production. So I think that's something that's going to be, you know, close to follow. Looks like we're still having some technical difficulties with Jeff. If I can get him back, I will uh I, I will bring him back on. Number two in my defensive back rankings is Richie Grant out of Atlanta. I think the same thing can be said about Richie Grant. I think Richie Grant's got the versatility to be a free safety or strong safety. He's got a average to above average athleticism, speed, movement skills. He's got great ball skills, very good to great instincts and play recognition. He doesn't he lacks top end long speed and burst. So if they want to protect that he might play a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage, but I think he can easily line up as the free safety than the strong safety. So I think that's something that it's going to be interesting to kind of see how Atlanta deploys him because I think that'll impact whether or not 
he should be at the top of the rankings. So I think with both those top two guys, right, Morig and Richie Grant, it really depends on how the team is going to utilize those guys. And there hasn't been rookie mini camps yet, so I haven't dug into any of those reports yet. And once those reports are out there, I think it'll help get a little bit better narrative about maybe where these guys are in terms of positioning on the defensive depth charts to get a little bit better sense of maybe what position they're going to be utilized best in. If I keep this going, number three is Divine Diablo. He also went to the Raiders. There is a lot of talk that he's going to be used as a linebacker. Now, last I checked, his designation on MFL was still safety, but if he goes to the linebacker group, he kind of goes into that mix where like guys like Nick Bolton, Pete Werner, Chester are Derek Barnes, and then obviously he loses that you know, if he stays at safety, to me, you can make the case if he keeps his safety designation, but he's mostly used as a linebacker, you know, Diablo could move to the top of this list. You know, that's that's the kind of, you know, upside he would have if he's mostly playing like a linebacker safety hybrid, but he still has that safety designation. So I think that's one something that's interesting as well. Number four, Andre Cisco to Jacksonville. Cisco is a guy who, you know, at six feet, 216 pounds, he's versatile to play free safety or strong safety, but I think he's got a little bit more of the body type to be a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage. So Cisco's the guy that intrigues me a good amount. Uh, number five for me is uh, Talanoa Hufanga, who went to the 49ers. You know, Hufanga is a guy very much who is in the box safety or could even play linebacker. So those guys are just kind of pushed up when you're talking about IDP rankings for the defensive backs. So Hufanga is a guy that if he gets an opportunity, if he's that playing that linebacker safety hybrid and he has his safety that de- he has his defensive back designation, that's going to, you know, increase his value. And the same thing can be said about the next guy who didn't go to well into day three, but Hamza Nas Dean who went to the Jets you know, he's a guy who, another guy who very much can be asked to be a safety slash linebacker hybrid and play in the box. He's got upside. So if that's how the Jets plan to deploy him, you know, we, we've we seen his ability to play close to the line of scrimmage. I mean, he's six three, 215 pounds. So he lacks the athleticism to play in space. But if you keep him moving north-south, if you keep him moving forward, he could be that life linebacker safety hybrid. So I think he could be an interesting guy there. So I have him there. These linebacker safety hybrids, I kind of place them for now in that 5-6 range with the ability to move them up or down. Number seven, I had uh, Derek Forrest, who went to Washington. Number eight, I had Javon Holland, who went to Miami. He's more of a free safety, you know, so that's an issue a little bit. Tyree Gillespie, uh, Gillespie, who also went to the Raiders, and then Jamar Johnson, who went to Denver, who fell a couple rounds further than I think most people expected him to. So that kind of rounds out my top 10 defensive backs. I have a little bit further down at 12 and 13, 14, 15, some cornerbacks. To me, the top cornerbacks are all guys who play to run well, who are physical, who are tough, who are going to be in the mix. So I had Sertan, Horn, Elijah Molden, Benjamin St. Juice, uh, and Ifaidu Malafanyu as my top five cornerbacks that are down there at the back end of my defensive back rankings to close out those rankings. But it really is an interesting thing when you're talking about defensive backs in terms of how to rank these guys. So I think that's something that that's something that you really got to be careful about when you're talking about drafting defensive backs, how do, how high to invest in them. To me, they're the last things you should be filling in your IDPs. They're very similar from one player to the next. So I do think that is something that you want to try to be cognizant of and be aware of that these guys, you're looking for those guys who got tackle opportunities, who play in the box a lot. So I think those are the guys you want to be targeting. So I think Jeff's continuing to have some technological issues. So unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to get him back on the air. I was really hoping to hear his thoughts on Mika Parsons and then the defensive backs. But but Jeff's someone who's going to be 
more uh we're gonna get him back on on a pretty regular basis we hope so it'll definitely be something that i'll pick his brain next time he's on about some of these idp guys i kind of wanted to round out the night just kind of circling back to the offensive side of the board a little bit in terms of rankings and when we're talking about these guys on the offensive, you know, I shared my rankings the other day, but I've had a little bit of an opportunity to kind of see what's out there, the consensus, so to speak. And I wanted to share some thoughts on it. At the quarterback position, it seems like the consensus number two is Justin Fields, and then Trey Lance is number three. I currently have them flip flopped. I talked on air last time. I don't think there's much difference between them in terms of fantasy viability. If somebody wants to have Justin Fields two and Trey Lance three, I could totally get behind that. To me, I don't think there's much of a difference for fantasy between Lawrence, Lance, and Fields. Right now, I have it Lawrence, Lance, Fields, and I used Shanahan, the San Francisco scheme, better playmakers, better overall team to put Lance higher than Justin Fields. The truth be told, of those two, the one who's going to run more it's probably going to be the one that ends up being the more valuable fantasy quarterback slightly. So if one of them runs for 500 yards and one runs for 700, it's probably going to be the one. The 700 yards, that is probably going to be the difference factor. So I think it really depends on that. I gave the slight edge, like I said, to you can make the case that maybe Fields should get the slight edge because he's probably going to play more this year or maybe sooner than, than Trey Lance. But I, I think they're, it's a coin flip to me, those two. So I have no issues with that. You know, Zach Wilson, I think, is the consensus four. Mac Jones, five. I think most people have Kellen Mond ahead of Trask and Davis Mills. Um, I think that makes sense because of that trio of Mond, Trask, and Mills, I think Kellen Mond is the clear guy with the most upside in that group and the most rushing ability and capabilities as well. Davis Mills, the more I've thought about this, the more I, I am puzzled by the Davis Mills pick. I truly am. and I find it baffling for this reason. Yes, I'm not a fan of Davis Mills, but I'm not sitting here to say he can't uh, turn into something. But the Houston Texans are going to be one of the worst teams in football next year. They're going to have a top three or four pick. They're not going to pass on a top-tier quarterback because Davis Mills might show a little something as a rookie on a bad team. So I just I, I don't get the pick because I don't know what the end game is that maybe you have a backup quarterback, you know, he's not going to do enough this year where you're going to be able to turn him around and trade him for a first. If, if he shows glimpses, maybe you can trade him for a late second. Like, is that worth it? Even if you get a late second for him to trade, to, to have him for a year and then trade him for a late second, which is unlikely, you know, is, is that worth it? Then not drafting a guy who could be a, a starter in year one for you. Like, I, I don't get the pick. There, I don't see any scenario where he's the starting quarterback when 2022 starts. So if there's no possibility, what's what are you doing drafting him? Like I, I just I don't get an, the rationale with that. You have Tyrod Taylor there. You know he's going to be the like, the bridge. And even if at some point they should have turned it over to Davis Mills unless he sets the world on fire and looks like the second coming of a top five quarterback, there's no way they're going to pass on a quarterback in the draft next year. So I, I just don't see the long game with, with drafting Davis Mills. If we take it to the running back position, I think most people are in lockstep that they have Najee Harris one, Travis Ethan two. I think, you know, you might, you might find some people who have them flip flopped. I don't have a huge issue with them. I have them back to back in my rankings uh, Javante Williams, I think most people have somewhere in that mid to late round one territory that like, you know, anywhere between five, six or, you know, seven, eight, nine range. I would say he's probably between, for most people, he's probably somewhere in that five to nine group, depending on settings or, or the, the context of the league. I'm stunned at how high I've seen Trey Sermon and Michael Carter. I think it was Yahoo. I'm not sure. I saw Trey Sermon at five. I, I don't know how you can put a third round, a late third round running back in a crowded backfield where they've shown the ability to use lots of different guys there. I don't know how someone could have him at five. Like I struggle with that. Like I understand the rationale, I guess, because it could be a really great offense. We've seen very productive people in the Kyle Shanahan scheme. But are you willing to invest the fifth pick in a rookie draft 
on a late third round running back. Didn't we just learn our lesson with Keyshawn Vaughn? And I'm not saying I like Trey Sermon way more than Keyshawn Vaughn. I like the setup way more. I think he could be a very good running back. I think he could develop into the starting running back in San Francisco and work his way up to a RB, you know, a high RB two. But there's a lot of things that got to go right for that to happen. For a late third round running back to become a fantasy RB one, a lot of things have to break right. And are we passing on elite level top 10 in the draft wide receivers for him? We're taking him over guys like Jalen Waddle and Devonta Smith. I struggle with that. I struggle with that because like when you, if you put him at five, you're putting them ahead of those guys. If you put him at five, you're basically saying Chase Pitts, Najee Harris, Travis Etienne. You're putting him over both Alabama receivers. I find that hard to do in a dynasty league. Two two wide receivers that were taken in the top 10, one number six and one number 10. I can't take a third round running back over a guy who was taken at six or 10. I just can't. And it could work out and be a mistake for me. Trey Sermon could be the guy there in San Francisco sooner rather than later and be dominant in that scheme. But I think more times than not, this, I think you do got to play the analytics. I think you do got to be smart about this. I just, I, I don't see it. I think it's too, way too up. I have him, right now I have Trey Sermon around 14, 15 in my overall big board. Fourth running back. For me, the highest I could see him going is 13. And that's putting him over a first round wide receiver and Rashad Bateman, who I don't love the landing spot. But right now I have Bateman and Terrace Marshall both ahead of Trey Sermon. Those guys got wide receiver two upside. Can't say that. To me, a wide receiver two is like a low end running back one. In some capacity. Especially when you consider it a longer lifespan. So. The Sermon one. If he's going in the first round. I'm not going to have him probably in any of my drafts. And then Michael Carter. Like Michael Carter the player a lot. But he's a fourth round pick. Thought he was going to be a second. People are drafting him. Like he was a second round pick. We just went into this. Two years ago, it was Devin Singletary. I said, be careful. Late third round pick. They could easily go back to the well next year. They did with Zach Moss. Michael Carter's an interesting player. He's going to get every opportunity to be a major part of that backfield. But that draft capital does not scream long-term hold of that backfield. To me, it screams really good role player, part of a committee. They're going to still look to add the guy at some point, especially if they want to bring that the guy in. Michael Carter wasn't a full bell cow in college, right? He, he paired up with Javante Williams. They're going to get somebody to pair with him. It's going to hurt Michael Carter's value. And if it's a first round running back next year, it's really going to hurt him. If it's a second round running back, it's going to hurt him. If it's a pricey free agent, really going to hurt him. Best case scenario, they draft a the guy in the third round, kind of like when the Bills went Singletary Moss back to back years. You want to hope that the Jets next year draft a guy in the third or fourth round and that forms their backfield duo. Then Michael Carter maybe maintains his viability as at least a 50% guy in the backfield. Hard to take Michael Carter over round one wide receivers, but I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it in rankings. Michael Carter over Kadarius Tony. Michael Carter over Elijah Moore. Second, first pick in the second pick in the second round. Michael Carter over Bateman. I don't. I don't get it. How often do we see these running backs late day three or round four materialize to long term fantasy viability? It's rare. There's moments of it. But not a lot. 
I think we get, I think we hold on to our values and our pre-draft takes too long. I like Michael Carter. I thought he was going round two. He goes round two. This is a different conversation. He goes to the top of round two or somewhere to judge straight back in to round two, let's say middle or late round two. Yeah, I think that I'd feel pretty good that he's going to get every opportunity to be at least the lead of a committee. Round four? I don't feel that way. I just don't. At the wide receiver position, I think I've seen a lot of people have Devonta Smith too, Waddle three. To me, they're interchangeable. No issues there. They're probably never going to – I'm probably never going to separate them from being back-to-back because I really I, I really don't, to be honest with you. It was hard for me to rank them pre-draft. It's hard. It's just as hard to me for me to rank them post-draft. I mentioned this on the last show, so I'm not going to go in deep. But the lack of respect Kadarius Tony is getting is baffling to me. It's baffling. First round wide receiver was projected to go in round one since the senior bowl. Almost every mock, Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, most of Daniel Jeremiah's minus his last one, Lance Zerline, all of the mocks had him as a round one guy. Look at all their big boards. Everybody had him in their big board inside the top 30. This wasn't a reach. It came out that the Packers wanted him at 28. Urban Meyer desperately wanted him at 25. The Saints wanted him. Let's just pretend Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. Kadarius Toney goes to the Jacksonville Urban Meyer scheme paired with Trevor Lawrence. He goes to New Orleans with Sean Payton. Or he goes to the Packers potentially to be the second option behind Devontae Adams and pair with Aaron Rodgers. The narrative on Kadarius Tony is dramatically different. Nobody's calling it a reach. People are loving it for fantasy. I think we've gone too far the other way. This is a dynasty rank for a wide receiver, not a running back that we need immediate production because lifespan is short. Whether it's the analytics community not liking Kadarius Tony because of breakout age and market share, I say without context, that's irrelevant to me. He wasn't a full time wide receiver until this senior year. He was a gadget player because he played high school Wildcat quarterback. Don't tell me he couldn't beat out Van Jefferson. Van Jefferson was a really good player who went in like the second round of the NFL draft. That idea and that mindset, oh, the co- the coach will play the best guy. I don't know if I buy it. He's not going to play a marginal player over somebody better. But more times than not, if it's close, if talent level is close enough, they're going to give the guy who's been there longer the opportunity because they got to protect their their image. They can't go into a recruiting circle and say, yeah, come to our school. You might have to wait it out, but you're going to get your opportunity. And then yank opportunities away from kids. If the gap is wide, of course they're going to do it. They're in the business of winning football games. But Van Jefferson was a really good receiver in college. So even if he, so, I don't want to hear, oh, there is Tony couldn't beat out Van Jefferson. Was it an open competition? Might not been. It might have been Van Jefferson's job to lose, and he played really well. These coaches got to give their, their guys their certain opportunities. They don't want to lose the locker room. Given a guy who was a high school quarterback who's still learning the position, putting him over an experienced, savvy route runner like Van Jefferson, it's hard to do. So they use him in gadget role in lots of different ways. Tony battled some injuries earlier in his career, still was learning the position. Was never a full-time receiver. So I think market share and stuff like that are irrelevant. And then the other thing is I mentioned it. Green Bay, New Orleans, or Jacksonville, people are excited. Kadarius Tony's not falling to the second round, late second round in rookie drafts. He's going late round one to the first four picks in round two. That's where he should be going. He should be going somewhere between like one pick 12 overall and pick 16 overall. If he's not in that pick 12 to 16, I think you're overthinking it. Whether it's because of the analytics, 
whether it's pre-draft bias. And then the other one, it's the Giants. Like, we've never seen teams turn it around offensively. People keep saying two things. Too many weapons. Okay. Evan Ingram's gone after the year, probably. Very high probability Sterling Shepard's gone. Darius Slayton. I think Darius Tony could end up being way better than, than Darius Slayton. Who knows if Saquon Barkley gets a second contract. So you look at this team and you would think, okay, Kenny Galladay's locked in. But who else is locked in long-term on the offense? It could easily be Kadarius Tony's the second most viable player on offense. And even if you say, okay, they're going to keep Saquon Barkley. Okay. Then it could be Kenny Galladay, Saquon Barkley, Kadarius Tony. Those are the three term, the three guys long-term who are going to be the building blocks for the Giants offense, get the most touches, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think we should be drafting a player or not drafting a player based on Evan Ingram, Darius Slayton, Stone Shepard. Concussion history, contract that the Giants can move on from if they need to save nine to eleven million dollars, whatever Stone Shepard's cap number is next year. So I I don't buy that one. And the second one, and this is to me is the most ridiculous one. I'm concerned about Jason Garrett's scheme. I'll be the first one to admit it. I was hoping they fired him, hoping they moved on from him. But we're now pushing guys down ranks significantly. We're now taking round four running backs over round one wide receivers because of a offensive coordinator scheme that may not even be there halfway through the season. I'm telling you, as someone that follows the Giants religiously, Garrett's gone if they don't make great strides with this offense this year. I think Judge is going to mandate to him that his offense has got to look a lot different. I don't think Jason Garrett's an idiot. He's now coaching as an offensive coordinator for his livelihood. He bombs. He never gets another head coaching job. He does. He has a good offense. He might get an opportunity. So do we think he's going to be that rigid to not utilize his weapons that gives him the best chance to look good and get another job? And if he really is that rigid, I think Joe Judge is going to try to convince him not to be. And if he still doesn't listen... Giants offense probably struggles. He probably gets fired. And Judge probably goes into the college ranks, maybe not during the year, but then in the offseason, to bring somebody in. Judge is not willing to make judge is willing to make changes. He's willing to think outside the box. He's willing to bring in and have a college feel in terms of the number of coaches, coordinators, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think people are overvaluing the Giants' weapons in terms of the long term. I think people are overvaluing the Jason Garrett effect. And they're thinking very short-term with Kadarius Toney. And I don't think we should be thinking short-term. Kadarius Toney is still a developing player who really can still have maybe more improvement and refinement than, say, somebody like Rashad Bateman, who's more of a finished product. Elijah Moore, who's more of a finished product, more refined, more developed. Kadarius Toney has a lot of untapped upside and potential still. He's not fantasy viable right now, not for year one, but that's that's what we do now. This is a weak draft class. I just think in the time frame that we want these rookies to be good at or year two, we want to start seeing them be fantasy viable. By year three, we want them to be a staple in starting lineups if they're not already in year two. We want them to be hitting what their ceiling is by year three, year four. So why are we worried about who's on the Giants roster right now? And why are we worried about Jason Garrett? Either he's going to fix this offense and utilize his weapons or he's out. I think we're overreacting to that. And the final note is the overvaluation on round four wide receivers. Where I am seeing Tylen Wallace and Amon Ross St. Brown is staggering. 
when's the last time a day three wide receiver materialized into a consistent big-time fantasy player? We are way overvaluing the landing spot, and it's true. The Detroit Lions depth chart is wide open. But he's a round four pick for a reason in the NFL's eyes. He might develop into a good player, maybe even a great player. But to have him ranked as high as I'm seeing him in the industry, I just don't get it. We're so enamored with analytics. Not me. But we're so enamored with analytics, but we're not using the analytics on this as a consensus. Draft capital matters. Round four is not a lot of draft capital. I'm not saying Amon Ra can't materialize into a good player, because I think he can. I like his game. Just like I like Michael Carter's game. Just like I like Tylen Wallace's game. But you don't think the Lions, this year, they wanted to fix the trenches, right? A couple defensive tackles. Penny Sewell, Penny Sewell fell to them. You don't think if they move on from Jared Goff next year or in two years, you don't think they're going to make major, major investments at the skill position? I would bet they're the team next year. They're going into free agency and they're looking to add a big name and they're looking to add a big name in the draft early on. And in a blink of an eye, I think by 2022, the odds are high that Amonara St. Brown is third on the depth chart in terms of pecking order. If they go out and get a big-time free agent and then draft a guy in the first or second round next year. I think those odds are very high. And then if he's the third guy on the wide receiver depth chart and they have Swift coming out of the backfield, great pass catching running back and they have TJ Hawkinson great pass catching tight end you could see a scenario that in a year from now one year from now Monroe St. Brown is the fifth guy in the pecking order on a Jared Goff or rookie quarterbacks target distribution it's not impossible I bet it's likely that's how far I would go likely there is no world that Amon Ross St. Brown should be going over Kadarius Tony and Elijah Moore. Kadarius Tony picked 20 overall. Kadarius, uh, Elijah Moore, second pick of, of, the, of round two. Amon Ross St. Brown should not just be, shouldn't be close to those guys. This should be a gap. Amon Ross St. Brown shouldn't even be ahead of Terrace Marshall. Terrace Marshall was a round one count who fell due to medical. In a situation in Carolina where if Anderson's not there long-term, it could easily be Marshall and DJ Moore as their their primary two receivers with Christian McCaffrey coming out of the backfield. If Aaron Rodgers plays in Green Bay, Amari Rodgers should be ahead of Amon Ross St. Brown too. Rondell Moore should be ahead. And I think Josh Palmer should be ahead. I think people are just overvaluing. And then Tylen Wallace, I get it. We all liked him in college. The path there is not easy. It's not easy. On a path, on a run first team with Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews already locked in, and then a first round investment in Bateman. So I think people are, are too high on him. But Amon Ross St. Brown is the real one that people are just way too high on. So Hope you guys enjoyed that IDP rankings. I'm sorry for the technical difficulties uh, with Jeff. I know he, he was very disappointed. Uh, he, he's just having some Wi-Fi issues uh, that were not able to be corrected and fixed. Uh, but we will get him on again soon uh, to pick his brain on some of this. I know we really had some thoughts he wanted to share about the rest of the IDP guys and then the guys on the offensive side of the ball as well. I wanted to make you guys aware, if you have not realized, Matt Caraccio, co-host of mine, has been putting out content on the Saturday to Sunday YouTube channel. So you can just find it by going to YouTube Saturday to Sunday. You can find it by going to Matt's Twitter handle. He has been putting out videos. Most of them are about eight to 10 minutes. There's a longer one in there. There is Tony, but they're called Unraveling Skill. 
He's done Kadarius Tony. He's done Jamar Chase. He's done Jalen Waddle. He's done Terrace Marshall. He's going to continue to put in out some more of these guys. These videos, guys, are must watch. Matt does a fantastic job taking you through some plays and really breaking down the skill that they're showing and unraveling that skill set of theirs and only going through a couple of plays just to, to show you some of their skill in terms of how they win, in terms of things that, you know, for, for Jalen Waddell, it was showing development from year one to year two, things that, you know, can't see in the box score, really breaking it down, uh, from the perspective of solving problems on the football field, little nuanced things that you might not pick up and see, you know, Matt does a great job explaining. So please get over to YouTube, get over to Twitter, click the link there and, and watch those videos. Please subscribe to the Saturday, Sunday YouTube channel as we're going to continue to provide some more content there. Uh, That'd be greatly appreciated and really help us out. Remember, if you're interested in the content that we're providing, it is still not too late to get the notebooks. They still would be very valuable to you. Uh, get over to the website, ssfootball.com. Click on the premium content tab. And for $9.99, you get access to all the premium notebooks. You get the rankings notebook. It has my dynasty rookie rankings. It has my IDP rankings updated throughout the entire summer. Uh, getting you ready for drafts all throughout the spring and summer. And then I keep the offensive players updated throughout the NFL season. So at all times you can check where I value those guys for trade purposes. You also get my draft rankings and tiers where I had guys based on my film evaluations as well. You get my Debbie rankings and then you also get the scouting notebook, which has close to 100 detailed write-ups of offensive skill players. A bunch of guys who didn't declare their write-ups are in there as well. Obviously, they'll be updated and new ones will be in the next set of notebooks. But you can get all our thoughts on guys that maybe didn't declare, like like the Justin Rosses of the world or uh, you know guys like that who went back to school because a lot of guys did go back to school. And then you get the draft projections notebook, which, yes, while the draft is in the books, it does have close to 400 players in there with a snapshot of who they are, some some strengths, some how they win, some developmental areas and concerns. So that is still very viable, too. It has both offense and defense. So if you're somebody that's looking for some snapshot of who they are on the defensive side for your IDP leagues, that really could come in handy as well. So please get over to the website, check out the premium notebooks, and purchase it for $9.99. It is the best way to support the show and continue for us to do what we're doing. If not, please at least get over to wherever you listen to the podcast, subscribe, uh, download the episodes, and rate and review there. And then also download uh, off of YouTube the videos, You know, subscribe to the videos, view the, the videos. Uh, it really helps us tremendously there as well. So on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our guests for the first half of the episode, Jeff Abercrombie and our sound and tech engineer, David Nicano, thank you for joining us. And I look forward to next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.